Hey, y'all. Welcome to a special edition of the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, bringing you a podcast that we produced several years ago on the topic of domestic violence. This is an important episode for several reasons, but the main one is that we are re-releasing it because one of the main people we spoke with for the podcast, Dr. Sonia Lewis, was tragically killed earlier this month when a man drove off the road here in Columbia and hit multiple people, attending a memorial for a teenager that was killed in a hit and run at the same location a year ago. Sonia, a 56-year-old local activist with One Common Cause Community Control Initiative, died on the scene. She was an inspiring person, as you'll hear, and for the first 35 years of her life, she was a victim in some way, shape, or form. The news of her passing devastated us all at the South Carolina lead, and I hope by sharing this podcast again, we can honor her memory and help someone. I know this episode is difficult already, and even more so now that you know she's gone, but I hope you give it a listen. So without further ado, here is our in-depth look on CDV from 2019. The biggest fears um, was his hands, his fists, um, where he took me out to dark fields out in far out in, in Richland County and or in down in lower Richland County. He would take me out to these fields and he would threaten. He would choke me. He would stomp me. He would slap me. And he would threaten to leave my body there in that field where nobody could find me. Imagine being in a relationship with someone you love and want to trust. Maybe you own a home together, have children together, or have become financially dependent on them, but they're abusing you. It's a situation many women and men find themselves in. Your husband or wife, boyfriend or girlfriend has slowly ostracized you from your closest friends and family. You don't know where to go because everyone in your life hasn't helped. Your church, family, coworkers, you're isolated. What would you do? I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, we're focusing several lead episodes this summer on in-depth topics we felt needed further exploration. And since criminal domestic violence remains a scourge in the Palmetto State, we wanted to keep attention on the issue. Look at how domestic violence can start, help you identify it and stop it before you or someone you love becomes a statistic. That first voice we heard today, that was Sonia Lewis. She was a victim. She was first victimized at age eight and she wasn't free from it until she was 35 years old. She was abused by a neighbor who was a law enforcement officer, the star quarterback in high school who fathered her first child, and then went right into a relationship with her now ex-husband who abused her for the next 18 years. I was thriving at work, excelling at work, being promoted multiple times. So financially, I was doing well, but I was a victim. I, I had that victim mentality. I had to ask permission to do basic things like go to the grocery store. You know, I was told to sit on a certain spot, and it had to be sit right here. I couldn't sit two inches away from that. It had to be on that spot. And, you know, for people on the outside, it sounds ridiculous, um, even his nickname for me was Dumb Dumb, even though I have eight college degrees and have a, a job in project management. He called me Dumb Dumb constantly. And um, that's what I felt like. I felt like a dummy. I lived that for 18 years. I lived that. I lived with the bruises and the, the dehumanizing treatment. And then as my children got older, he would take me away from the house to beat me so that it wouldn't happen in front of the children because as my sons got a little older, they would try to intervene. So rather than have that happen, he would take me to a dark alley or off into the woods to abuse me. 
I just I, I felt like I was hopeless. Um, and I, I definitely felt helpless because in the church, I was in the church and they knew it. There's no way he grew up in the church that we were attending. There was no way they didn't know what was happening to me. So I just felt like nobody was going to help me. And, um, you know, going to work after dating him and then marrying him, I worked for a major company in project management. I would go to work and have my coworkers laugh at me because I had black eyes and bruises. And um, they made fun of me. I was ostracized. Abusers, they ostracize you from your entire family. That's that's the first. So if there were a rule book, that would be rule number one, to ostracize you from your family. So I did not, I wasn't constantly with my mom or I, my mother lives here, but I just wasn't allowed to, to interact with my mom. I didn't know that I had somebody to go to. Members of her church were silent. People at work were silent, and she was removed from her friends. People knew what was going on. They could see it. There were plenty of silent witnesses in Sonia's life. And this was a woman who was educated and made the bigger salary, but she never had the money to spend. That is, unless she asked for permission first. I made the bigger salary. However, I never had money because he controlled all the finances. And if I did or said something he didn't like, um, he would withhold even the basic like lunch money or gas money from me. I had to ask permission if I wanted to go to the store. Um, I want to bake a cake. I have no eggs. I have to say, may I go to the store and get eggs? And usually the answer was no, we're not doing that. Can you imagine having to ask permission for simple tasks? This went on day after day, month after month, for more than a decade, until Sonia reached what she said was her lowest point. The, the moment, the defining moment for me to when I felt at my lowest point was when I was out shopping at Columbia Mall, and he accused me of engaging a salesman who was trying to help me find a suit for my son. And he drug me out of Sears in Columbia Mall, and this was in early 2000. He drug me out of the store into the parking lot. Beside the car, he was hitting me and punching me, and he had knocked me to the ground. And suddenly, I, I felt him stop, and I looked up, and there were these two mall security guards. And they were telling him, you know, grabbing him and stopping him. So I was like, finally. Somebody's going to call the police. You know, they're here. They're going to handcuff him. They're going to take him to jail. I'm finally going to get some help. They, instead of giving me help, they said to him, you can't do that here. You have to take her home to do that. So that's exactly what he did. He put me in the car and he took me home. And um, that was kind of the moment when I felt the most helpless, like, nobody's going to help me. This is just going to be my life. It had been my life. I grew up with it, you know, so it had been my life all of my life. And um, so I continued. I stayed in that for another five years after that. Five years. After the most hopeless point in Sonia's life, she stayed for five more years. That was until she finally worked up the courage to reach out to police finally. And you would think, hey, things are going to get better. Go, Sonia, finally do this. But like her past experiences with law enforcement, this interaction was only another letdown. And after five years, it didn't go the way you would think it would. When I finally decided that I'd had enough, 
and that I contacted the police and I got a restraining order against him. But during that whole process, the police officer who was supposed to be handling my case called me. He called my phone and he said, ask me, um, what's the other pillow in my bed still cold? And it went over my head because, you know, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand what he was saying. You know, police officer, I would have never expected that from him. And um, so he finally said, no, I'm trying to find out, you know, if you found somebody else yet. And this was not a good month after the fact. And so I hung up the phone. He called me again. He told me he had driven past my house and um, he told me he had seen that. Where are you coming from? Where you been? Um, I saw you just get home. Where are you coming from this late at night? And I was in grad school, so I was coming from class and it still startled me. Um, so he asked me to come in the next day to his office because he needed a statement. Um, and so when I went into his office, he put his hand on my thigh and he was he acted totally inappropriate. So when he called me later that day, I told him that I was going to tell. And he said to me, who's going to believe you? I'm a pastor in my church. I'm a police officer who's been on the force for numerous years. And, you know, you're a nobody. So who's going to believe you? Another major institution fails Sonia. The church and now the people who were sworn to protect her, especially at the lowest point of her life. When I asked her how she felt going from one abuser to another in a long line of abuse, what left her feeling how you would expect? I felt death was better than what I had to deal with every day. We'll get back to Sonia's story shortly. I promise you it gets better. And as a side note, people did believe her and that officer got what was coming to him. But while Sonia may have had a history of victimization, a controlling relationship can develop even among happy couples. The fundamental thing is to recognize that people don't go out for a date, get punched in the face, and think, oh, I'm going to carry on dating this person and marry this person. That's Sarah Barber, the executive director of South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. These relationships start out like all relationships. They start out rooted in love. They start out with that sort of amazing early start of relationships where you just want to be with that person all the time and you find each other fascinating and, and you, you know, there's a lot of phone calls, there's a lot of texts, there's a lot of seeing each other. Maybe you don't see your friends as much as you did before. The difference between an abusive relationship and a, and a regular relationship is that regular relationships or healthy relationships kind of shift out of that. And, and settle into a pattern. Whereas abusive relationships, that can kind of carry on. And it's not that um, you're not calling your friends because you're in love. It's just you're, you're stopped from calling your friends and family. The person starts attacking your self-confidence, making you think you're ugly or stupid or crazy. So to the point where you start thinking that you are those things and that other people will start thinking you're those things too. It can be with the obsessive texting, you know, 200 texts a day, showing up at your workspace, the physical violence might not start for a long time after all that. It's also important to recognize that physical violence may only need to be used once. 
once somebody's punched you or worse, and then you hear that tone of their voice again, you know that this is always a possibility to happen again. So I think, you know, the red flags for me are when you, you sense that someone is being isolated from their friends and family. I think that's the first real thing that we need to take notice of. Because even at the beginning of a healthy relationship, if that person is with another person continually, they're still talking to you. You know, they're not avoiding you. And I, I think that's a difference that might be hard to tease out at first, but is very much there. The sad thing, too, is that this can happen quickly. Um, I was reading yesterday about a student at a university in Utah who was murdered by her abusive boyfriend, who she was only involved with for a month. He was obsessed with her um, and ultimately shot her. She had made 20, she and her family had made 20 reports to campus police that were dismissed because this may not look to an outsider like something that really needs to be worried about. Does Sarah Barber sound familiar? We just heard all that happened to Sonia. There were plenty of silent witnesses in her life, and they're silent because these are things people don't want to talk about or feel comfortable ignoring or letting it fester behind closed doors because it's something that doesn't directly involve you. But that's precisely why it's a problem and keeps us on the top of lists that we don't want to be on as a state. We're ranked number six for women who die at the hands of men and have been in the top ten for years, even number one multiple times. A Centers for Disease Control survey found nationwide 37% of women said that they've experienced at least one instance of sexual violence, physical violence, or coercive control. That number jumped to 42% among South Carolina respondents. So let's do some simple math. There's a little over 5 million people in South Carolina. 52% of our population is women. So roughly 42% of 2.5 million women have said they have experienced some sort of sexual violence, physical violence, or coercive control. That is a staggering number. This data means you know somebody who has been affected, but might not know it. You would have thought that since it's such a pervasive problem that we as a state would have handled this epidemic better. But it's only been in the past four years that domestic violence has really been taken seriously in South Carolina. That's because it wasn't until 2015 that CDV laws were strengthened following the Pulitzer Prize winning series Till Death Do Us Part by the Post and Courier and the creation of then-Governor Nikki Haley's Domestic Violence Task Force, all of which increased political momentum in the Statehouse to pass tougher sentences for offenders that in some situations even takes away some abusers' gun rights. Before these changes, the cards were stacked against victims, even at the prosecutorial level. We were one of three states that allowed police officers to prosecute cases at, at any level. That's Duffy Stone. He's been the solicitor for the 14th Circuit, which includes Allendale, Beaufort, Carlton, Hampton, and Jasper counties since 2006. In South Carolina, they were in magistrate's courts throughout South Carolina having to argue the nuances of constitutional law against seasoned defense attorneys. It, it wasn't fair to them. It wasn't fair to the victim. And the result was very rarely the right result. Uh, it was just a bad process, and it was something that Governor Haley felt very strongly about. So part of what uh, we did when when we worked through the the what we call the caseload equalization plan, getting the funding for new prosecutors was the the guarantee that we would go in, either get those cases out of magistrate's court so they could be prosecuted with general sessions prosecutors, or send prosecutors down there. And and I can uh, I, I can safely tell you that now that practice uh, 
there may still be. Uh, I, I think we had gotten it down to two smaller agencies that that uh, that are still in the process of trying to work through that. But at this point, you don't see that anymore, and and at least in the field of domestic violence. Now, at a minimum, we can at least say we have lawyers that are now handling domestic violence cases, not cops representing women fearing for their lives in a courtroom designed to deal with someone challenging a ticket for going 55 and a 35. But even with this revamp system and more funding, it's still not where it needs to be. We look at an average number of cases coming in as 113,000 when we had 303 prosecutors. That meant that every prosecutor in South Carolina was handling 376 cases. The idea was to try to get that as close to 200 as possible. We got it down with the, with the money coming from the General Assembly. We got that down to 280 cases per prosecutor. Still a pretty large caseload, not where we wanted to be, but, but a great improvement. Well, the problem now is, is the caseload and the intake number from the state is now, again, this year, I think it's going to come out to be about 132,000. When you when you look at a caseload, and, and a lot of people probably have a difficult time making this, uh, understanding the concept, think of it in the standpoint of going into your doctor's office, walking into a, the reception area, you're sick, you need to see the doctor, and there's 376 people in the waiting room. So why, after this one legislative change four years ago, is the problem not fixed? The legislature is, I believe, trying to make a difference, trying to put, but you can't legislate this. Domestic violence cannot be seen in a silo that only relates to the criminal justice system. Passing a piece of legislation is not going to solve domestic violence. It's going to take a number of different approaches. It's going to take education. It's going to take holding offenders accountable. I'm convinced now more than ever that it's also going to take victim services and and a strong emphasis on giving these victims the ability to help themselves and to move on if, if they so choose. It's going to take all of that. It's a cultural change that has to take place, though, and and that's something that uh, I think awareness is so crucial for because as a state, I think we have to change that underlying culture. That is every single one of our subjects, and they didn't speak to each other, and we didn't even prompt them about it. They all said it on their own. This is not something you're going to legislate away. That said, even though laws won't entirely fix this problem, there is still more the legislature can do. For example, reporting is improving, but data collection is not where it needs to be, such as what recidivism rates look like for abusers who participate in intervention programs versus those who get prison time, and are the approaches being used to deal with the problem working? We also don't know how many abusers have had their guns taken away from them under the new law. Guns are the primary weapons used for killing women in domestic violence situations. We asked our intern Bristow to call around to different law enforcement agencies to get an idea of how it's working but we couldn't obtain any data on how many abusers have been required to surrender their guns as a result of a CDV conviction, which can range from three years to a lifetime ban. And even though the system has improved, the public trust of that system still has a long way to go. And we have one member program that did a study that within their service area, they served over a thousand new victims of sexual assault in one year. There were 400 incident reports approximately made to the law enforcement organizations within those counties. 43 arrests made, and then we don't know what the conviction rate is. So you can see how that attrition happens. The number of people who've experienced this versus the number of people who seek help versus the number of people who go to law enforcement versus the number of arrests made versus the number of people who are convicted, you'll see just a steady, steady erosion of those numbers. 
when there's no accountability, when we only have one kind of accountability that doesn't work for everybody, we're not going to see any significant change in our data. And if you keep saying, why don't these people just leave? It's not that easy, guys. Just listen to this example from Sarah. Why do people stay? I think we should, the question may want to be, how does anybody ever get out? Um, When you think about the huge barriers to leaving, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that people often want the violence to stop and not the relationship to end. This is somebody that they're in love with, that they've built a life with, that they have children with, that everything is entwined in their lives. So to walk away from that is very difficult. When you put fear on top of that, fear of what's going to happen to you, that he's threatened to kill you if you leave, that he's threatened to kill the kids, that he's threatened to take the kids, um, that's another huge barrier to leaving. How can you possibly think about doing that? What if he's never allowed you to work? How are you going to find the financial resources to get away? How are you going to afford an attorney to be able to fight for custody of your kid when he's the one that has all the money? How? What if your um, health insurance is dependent on his job? and he's going to take you off? What if you're going to, if you leave or, or if he leaves and then cuts off all the um, utilities to your house? I think this is very, very complicated. We talk about it as if it's just an event that somebody can wake up and do this. But, you know, even for someone like me who has a, a well-paying job and, and a stable a stable job where I can take time off. If tomorrow I had to pick up everything in my house that I needed and leave, leave a lot of things behind, if I had to change my children's schools, if I had to find the first and last month's deposit, if I had to find new health insurance, if I had to find all these things, even in my position, which is one of privilege compared to what a lot of people are dealing with, that would be very, very difficult for me to do within a couple of days. And I think then you add the fear on top of those logistical issues and you're talking about something that's almost impossible. The fact that people manage to do it is absolutely astounding. And those women should be given an enormous amount of credit and understanding of why it may have taken them so long to pull off such a monumental feat. And there are so many other aspects at play, especially when it comes to other marginalized people, such as those in the LGBTQ community, the increased violence against black trans women, and also dating violence, because you don't have to be married to be abused. Domestic violence is pervasive. It cuts across sexuality, gender, and socioeconomic backgrounds. If you or someone you know needs help now, or you have questions or want to know how to help, stop listening and call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. We'll have more resources available at the end of the podcast and in our show notes. One of Sonia's saving graces was that her ex-husband wanted her to become more successful so she could bring home more money. He was fine with her getting more college degrees, but that's what got her out. She had plenty of silent witnesses in her life, but one finally reached out to her. I was in grad school, and I was sitting in class. I always, you know, I lived in, in silence and, um, and, and in a silo, and I didn't let people in because I didn't want people to know what I was going through. So it was amazing how one of my professors after class asked me to stay behind one evening, and I knew that my abuser calculated the time it took me to get out of class and to get home. 
So it was I was in a panic because there were other people who stayed behind to ask questions or needed to talk to her as well. So, of course, she wanted to talk to me last. So um, she just slipped me a card. She slid it to me, put it in my hand. She didn't say anything. She just slid it in my hand. When I got in the car, I looked at it, and it was for sister care. I hid it, put it away, and the very next day, I was assaulted by my abuser, my husband, who was my abuser. And that card, I was on my way home from work, and I took out the card, and I looked at it, and, and it just hit me. It's time. It's time. You can't run for the rest of your life. You can't hide. And I said to myself these words, I would rather die running than to die on my feet standing still. So I began that day. I I called Sister Care. They helped me to formulate a plan to leave because that's how a lot of women get killed. They just leave or they have no plan. I had children. I had a job. I was in grad school about to graduate. I had all of these things going. And so when I went to Sister Care, they took all of these things into account and they put together a safety plan and then a life plan so that I could live and continue to have my, my life and those things that were important to me. Because if I had to go and live somewhere, under, take away, strip my identity and I didn't have my job and I couldn't see my kids, I would have rather just stayed in the relationship. But they made the transition easier for me, easier on me. And I was able to um, move to a safe place um, and to continue my life and to actually get out of the relationship. And it took me a while. They assisted me every step of the way through my divorce proceedings, putting things in place to ensure I was safe. I had uh, order protection against him. They showed up to court with me and they just made that process so much easier. And I was able to get out. And from there, I just began to thrive on my job and I was able to focus and and I was able to have a life. And now I am um, an advocate and I, I go out a lot with Sister Care. I've written a couple of books. I, I'm doing things so that uh, women who are in those situations can ha- realize that there is a way out and that you can come out and be normal and be happy. Sister Care was there when she needed it. They, like many organizations, help people like Sonia get out. It takes time, but just getting started is critical. Look at Sonia. She was abused as a child. She was assaulted starting in her teenage years and was married to her abuser for 18 years. And five years after the lowest point of her life in that Richland County Mall parking lot, Sonia left. I spent my very first night alone ever in my life when I was 35 years old. Had never been alone, straight from my mother's house to his house. Um, And, you know, had never had any time just for me. Until I left him, it felt so good. I could make decisions. Um, I said before, I had to ask permission if I wanted to go to the store. Um, I want to bake a cake. I have no eggs. I have to say, may I go to the store and get eggs? And usually the answer was, no, we're not doing that. So once I was free, I go to the store and buy eggs even when I didn't need them, just because I could. That's how free I was. A note for our listeners, Sonia is happily remarried to a great guy. She's a published author, an advocate who travels the country, has eight degrees, and she got out. She restarted her life after decades of victimization, and Sonia is winning. 
Like we said, this can't be legislative out of existence. Domestic violence doesn't exist in a silo. It takes action from leaders in all different communities and industries to be aware of this problem, and for you as well. I get that this isn't the true crime you want to hear about, but hundreds of years of not wanting to talk about this is what got us here in the first place. But you can help. Friends, there are a lot of failures before there are successes. People leave an average of seven times before finally leaving for good. Understand, it's not so easy to leave. Stand by them and help just by putting out positive support. Don't pass judgment by saying, I would never stay. You may be shutting someone out before you even let them in. Be a sounding board. Be available. Reach out to advocacy groups to get ideas on how to help. And for the men out there, if you see something, say something. If a buddy of yours is acting weird, obsessive, or controlling, say something. That's not normal healthy behavior. Intervene. People may say, that's not my place. Well, imagine if it's your sister, your mother, a daughter, or your work wife. Is that what you're going to say at the funeral too? Not my place to intervene? And for parents, create trust and discuss healthy relationships with your kids. A previous CDC survey found that 12% of teenagers have already experienced sexual assault. You can find resources in our show notes at scetv.org backslash sclead. You can also call the South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, SCADVASA, at 803-256-2900. 803-256-2900. And visit their website, www.sccadvasa.org to find resources and organizations that can help survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. The South Carolina Lead is produced in partnership with South Carolina ETV, South Carolina Public Radio, and a special thanks to Sarah Barber, Solicitor Duffy Stone, and Dr. Sonia Lewis. And another shout out to the Post and Courier, for their defining series, Till Death Do Us Part. You can find that powerful series and resources in our show notes at scetv.org backslash sclead. Our producer is A.T. Shire. Sean Birch is our supervising producer. Bristow Richards is our intern. Tom Posey is our executive producer. This episode was recorded and produced in South Carolina Public Radio's studios here in Columbia on August 9th, 2019. I'm Gavin Jackson. Thanks for listening.